For those who don't know me, my name is Mark Evans. Nat and I are not related, but um, there you go. So there's an unwritten rule in our society that says there's three things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. Uh, politics, religion, and money. Now, I tell you this because a guy misses one teaching team meeting, and not because he wasn't willing to go, but because somebody, I won't mention any names, Doug Loveday, <laughs> accidentally sent the information about the meeting to the wrong email address. And then you find out that you've been assigned a text that makes you talk about all three. So, here we go. Um, we've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount over the last number of weeks, and our text for this morning is from Matthew 6, 19 to 24, and hopefully this clicker is gonna work for me. There. Yes, okay, so. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Oh, go back one. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We're in for a lot of fun this morning. Um, so it's tricky to speak on a passage like this, and one of the reasons is that there's sort of an assumption that the person speaking has it all figured out. But the tensions that Jesus raises in this set of scriptures are just as real for me and my family as they will be for all of us. And it's my hope this morning that as I preach, that I'm preaching to myself as well as to the church family. And that as I do so, we might be able to wrestle with the challenge of Jesus' words while also noticing some of the cultural blind spots that we have that make our ability to connect with God more complicated and kind of wound our discipleship. Now, this theme of money is not an uncommon one for Jesus. In fact, it was one of the topics he talked about the most. 11 of his 40 parables are either about money or use money to make a spiritual point. But the passage today is one of the more direct teachings on money that Jesus has given and uh, has two very famous kind of well-known phrases that Jesus used, the one of where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, and you cannot serve both God and money. Both are things that people often know as somewhat from the Bible. Now, if we look at Jesus' teaching, we'll see that in this section, he organizes his thoughts around four contrasting ideas. Okay, so... Um, the first is treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth. The second is good eye, healthy eye versus bad eyes, unhealthy eyes. The third is light versus darkness. And then the fourth is devotion to God versus devotion to money. 
And we're kind of going to be weaving in and out of these. We're going to meander around a bit today, I think, but we are going to be talking about these four contrasts, and I'm going to present a few contrasts of my own to help us understand what this text meant in Jesus' day and what it means for us today, given our context, which is similar yet different. But the first thing that Jesus does at the very beginning is that he points out um, the temporariness of our possessions. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Our possessions are not permanent. You've all heard the expression, you can't take it with you. They break down, they get lost, they go out of fashion, they get stolen. And so Jesus recommends that instead of treasuring something that is temporary, that we treasure something more lasting. Himself, God, and his kingdom, and the things that God cares about. Now in this contrast between treasures on earth and treasures in heaven, Jesus is acknowledging that there are two competing and contrasting versions of the good life that vie for the affections of our hearts. And Jesus roots this whole conversation in the heart. He roots it in our desire when he states, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice that Jesus does not say, where your treasure is, there will your mind be also. Although it is true that we do think about things that we treasure, but Jesus roots it in our desires, in our hearts. And I don't think it's too much to suggest that if I was to ask people in a room such as this who've come to church on a Sunday morning, or to ask the people who were gathered around Jesus while he gave the Sermon on the Mount back in his day, whether they believe that it is better to pursue earthly things or the things of God, I'm quite convinced that most of us would say, we believe that it's better to pursue the things of God or at least that we would think that's probably the right Sunday school answer. But Jesus is not interested in what we think and what we believe. He's interested in what we do in how we live. Because there are many instances in our lives where we know what the right thing is and the best thing is and the healthy thing is, and we have all the best intentions about doing it, and yet we don't. And frequently we can find ourselves confronted by this disconnect between what we know, what we believe, and what we actually do. Now, at the beginning of John's gospel, two of John the Baptist's disciples get wind of Jesus, and they start being a little bit creepy because they start following him around. All right? And so Jesus noticed this as he turns around and he says, he sees them following him and he says, what do you want? And they said, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now this is, what do you want? This is the first words Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. And I don't think it's by accident, I think it's significant. Now again, we're gonna do this a couple of times, so I apologize, but notice that he does not say to them, what do you know about me? What do you believe about the rumors that are circulating about me? No, he asks them, what do you want? What do you want with me? What are you desiring that makes you want to follow me right now? What are you pursuing? 
as you come behind me. And they say, where are you staying? Because they want to be with him. They want to know where he is so that they can be with him. They long. There is something about him that makes them long to be in his presence, to be about the things that he is doing. Now in scripture, the heart is seen as the control center for life. Proverbs 4.23 puts it this way. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Another translation says, guard your heart, for everything you do flows out of it. Everything we do flows from our hearts, our desires, the things that we love. Now in his autobiography, The Confessions, Augustine writes this, right at the very beginning, he writes, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now there is a lot happening in this short sentence. And we're gonna talk quite a bit about Augustine's thought today, so get ready. But um, the first thing you see that Augustine recognizes and and emphasizes here is that human beings As human beings, we have been made by God and for God. And what this means is that our relationship with our creator is essential to being able to fully live out our humanity. Now, a second thing he is saying is that to be a human is to be for something. Our lives have been designed to be directed towards something, to be in pursuit of something. And Augustine contends that this end, or this telos, as we heard about a few weeks ago, that our lives are being directed to, is God and his kingdom. And so in short, as human beings, we exist to pursue God. Now again, Augustine roots this pursuit in the heart. This is the last time I'll do this, but notice that he doesn't say You have made us to know you, and our minds are ignorant until they understand you. You've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So ultimately what Augustine is saying is that we are defined by our longings, and that we've been created to find meaning and purpose through the pursuit of the things that we love. And he insists that those longings find their true fulfillment in God, and that we will only encounter a deep restlessness and dissatisfaction when we attempt to love substitutes in his place, when we treasure earthly things above heavenly ones. Now this idea of treasures in earth and treasures in heaven lays forth two visions of what it means to live and be human. So on the one hand, with treasures on earth, life is understood in that humans find fulfillment through acquisition and consumption, through getting and using. We pursue the latest gadget, fashion, style, experience, with the hope that it will fill something restless within us, that it will bring meaning to our lives, and 
It might for a while until it doesn't anymore. And so we go on to look for Gadget 2.0 or the next fashion or the latest experience and we live in a cycle of acquisition and consumption. Now this life script places a high value on freedom, but defined in a very particular kind of way. Freedom is seen as having access to choices and lots of choices. It's great to be able to go to the grocery store and find 16 different kinds of ketchup and be able to pick which one we want. But it also has something to do with our ability to make the choices we want without the interference of anybody else. Now this combination of consumption and freedom defined in this particular way results in a highly individualistic approach to life. The individual and their needs reign supreme. I don't know what's happening here, but I'm all over the place. Um, but all this is in stark contrast to the life described in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want us to be clear that the Christian tradition does... Ooh, the Christian tradition, say that 10 times fast, does not say that possessions are bad. In fact, it recognizes the goodness of material things. In the book of Genesis, we are told that God created the material and physical world and that he saw that it was good. And it's important to keep that in mind because it helps us to value material things properly but also keep them in their proper place. As created things, they are not ultimate. They are created. And so as such, Augustine would assert that they are not to be used as ends in themselves, but means towards the enjoyment of God. And he puts it this way. Created things Really? Created things are to be used, but only God is to be enjoyed. A great question to think about, and it's one of the questions for your CovCom time, is what would it look like to live this way, to use created things as a means of enjoying God, to have them in that place? Now, Augustine also helps reshape our understanding of freedom, Freedom is not freedom from, from external influence and control. It is freedom for. It is the freedom for doing what is best. We are most free when we are able to make the best choice. And that, of course, in Augustine's understanding, would be the choice to live into God's will. We are most free when we are able to make choices for that. But this means something very particular and very important. It means that given our fallen state, our ability to do this is very compromised. And so true freedom then is not something that we exercise, but it's something that we receive as gift. Free, true freedom is not something that we exercise, it is something that we receive as gift and then live into. 
And this means the notion that freedom is being about choosing without external influence is actually not freedom at all, but slavery. Because left to our own devices, we have a tendency to make choices that are ultimately unsatisfying and even sometimes destructive. Now this understanding of freedom then lays bare the vacuousness of our individualistic society and culture. Because in order to do what is actually good and truly good, we must live in independence on others and particularly on God. We need God in order to make good choices. And so me as an individual needs to live in dependence in order to find true fulfillment. It is not about me being free to make as many choices as I want and do whatever I want. My heart doing whatever I want is gonna lead me astray. Now that is the mess that we live in as a culture. But the picture that Jesus paints here in the Sermon on the Mount is rooted in God and being connected to others. We are to, ma we are to maintain a detachment towards material things so that we can use them towards a greater purpose, a greater end, which is a deeper attachment to God and to our fellow human beings. William Cavanaugh, in a book called Being Consumed, puts it this way. The reason that we do not cling to material things is precisely because of our attachment to others. People are more important than things. And we need to be attached to one another and caring for the needs of each other. And because of that, we open our hands towards our things. Now, these two attachments to God and to others have been the recurring theme of the Sermon on the Mount thus far. Jesus has been talking about, this is not an exhaustive list, prayer, fasting, giving, lust, marriage, being salt and light, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, letting our yes be yes. All of these things, in one way or another, are about how we relate to God and other people, how we are attached to God and other people. And it is tr through this attachment, these attachments to God and others, that we actually find what is truly satisfying and what our hearts actually want. Now, in fact, Jesus goes so far at the end of the section we're looking at today to say the money has a tendency to act like a rival God in our lives. It competes for our worship. And he wants us to be on guard, to guard our hearts against the lure, the seductive lure of more. Because you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus said that. I'm just repeating it. Um, in the book of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about greed and accumulation, and it's called the parable of the rich fool. And it goes like this. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. It's a strong parable. Now, Jesus begins the parable, he intros it with these words, which I didn't use at the beginning. He says this, watch out, be on guard. Again, that idea of guarding your heart, be on guard. Against all kinds of greed, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That is not what our life consists about. Now, the desire for more is as old as humanity. As a kid, I used to be interested in archaeology, and we, as many kids are, and we've all heard the stories of like the pharaohs and the other ancient kings who you find their tomb and they're buried with like all their stuff so they can take it with them into the afterlife. But in our modern times, it's not just that we overvalue material goods, it's that we simultaneously value them too much and too little. And I think this point is really essential if we're going to understand how we should be faithful followers of Jesus in the time and age where we're planted, because I think our age, while having similarities to the time Jesus was speaking to, has its own unique challenges and its own unique uh, just things going on with it. And so I want to say this. We live in a modern, consumeristic, capitalistic culture. And the modern consumer is trained to be perpetually dissatisfied. We are confronted with a never-ending stream of products and fashions and things. And they're all promising to make our life better. And they're all selling us an image of the good life. And if we only had that, and oh, wouldn't it be so good? And social media does not help us as we sit there and start worrying about like seeing other people's things. As, oh, I wish I had that, or I wish I was doing that. Or we just live perpetually dissatisfied. Now, and we need to be. We actually culturally, people want us to be. Because if we're satisfied, we're not going to buy stuff. We live in a crazy culture where after 9-11, the president of the United States got on television and said, keep shopping. So that we can keep our way of life moving forward. And that seems crazy, but that is actually totally in line with the world that we live in. It actually makes total sense within that worldview. With the advent of the Industrial Revolution, the ability to produce goods surpassed people's capacity to consume them. And so a choice needed to be made. And as this grew and as this matured, a shift occurred away from meeting people's basic needs to cultivating needs that people didn't even know they had, to cultivating unbounded desire. Interesting, the guy who, Quaker Oats, the guy who, like I was reading this week, the guy who founded that, um, he, built a bunch, he bought a bunch of mills and needed to figure out how to convince the population 
that they wanted oatmeal for breakfast, but everyone at that time mostly ate meat and potatoes for breakfast. That's what people ate. People didn't eat oats for breakfast. But they had to create a need because he had these meals and he needed to do it. And that is sort of the process over and over again in our, in our culture. Now, because of that, we are now schooled in insatiability as a culture. Meaning that we are schooled to never be satisfied, never to be filled up. Rodney Stark puts it this way. Insatiability itself is as old as humanity, or at least the fall of humanity. What is unique to modern consumerism is the idealization and constant encouragement of insatiability, the deification of dissatisfaction. The deification of dissatisfaction. That we, there is a religious tone to this, that we are, like, that we are meant to be dissatisfied as a way of life. Now, listen to these fascinating and frightening, to be honest, words written in 1955 by the retail analyst. His name was Victor Lebeau. This is what he said in 1955. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. Wow. You read those words, and you reflect on the time that we live in currently, and is there any doubt that the world in which Lebeau prophesied, in which he hoped for, is the one that we live in now. But this way of life is not good for our souls, and as an aside, it is not sustainable either. And as we've gone through our election season here in Canada, we recognize that climate and environment are high on the agenda, as I think they should be. But as a quick aside, what I want to say is that as we don't grapple with this as a culture, if we don't grapple with this, if we don't reckon with this pattern of consuming and discarding, that we are in trouble. Because this way of life is not good for people and it's not good for the world. And I think, actually, because of the riches of our theological tradition, that the church should have something to say about this and a way to take a lead. But will we? All right, that's the aside is over. So, in order to wrestle more deeply with what, with, this, like, with what Jesus is saying in the midst of our consumer culture, I thought I'd just got to follow Jesus' teaching method here and come up with some contrasts of my own. Because as a, as a person, as a Christian living in a consumer culture, I recognize that there are two forms of character that are being shaped in me or trying to be shaped in me at the same time. And so we have the character of the consumer and the character of the Christian. All right, so, as we have seen already, as a consumer, the character that is being developed in us is one of never being satisfied. 
We could never be satisfied because then we'd stop needing things and then the economy would suffer. That is the picture of our world. Whereas, if you read scripture, we are called to satisfaction and joy and peace and contentedness. How am I going to be at peace or have joy when I'm dissatisfied? These things war against each other. Now, in Philippians, Paul says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or in want, to be content. That is the character that we want to develop inside ourselves, in our children, but it is hard and we swim upstream. In fact, the only dissatisfaction that I think the Bible allows for us is dissatisfaction in our relationship with God and dissatisfaction in our ability to, be, to care about the things that break his heart. In Psalm 42, we read, as the deer pants for strings, streams of water, my soul pants for you, O God, my soul My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? There is a desperation to be with God that is not satisfied and that needs, and in some sense should not be so we can keep pursuing that. And yet oftentimes in our lives, if we're honest, we would say that we are more excited about the next thing that we're thinking about getting than we are about God himself. Now, some other things that the consumer culture craves. Instant gratification. I want it, I want it now. I see that thing, I saw that ad, and I want that. I want it now. But the Christian is called to practice patience and self-control. That is where depth of life comes from. That is where our spiritual richness comes from. How do we practice those things when we are always wanting the next thing? I'm going to, as opposed to me having to click every time, I'm just going to throw like a bunch of these up at once now and just talk about them. So here we go. Um, As we've talked about already, consumer character is about the self. But we, as Christians, are being cultivated to live with others, to live in community. We pray our Father, as we talked about last week, that draws us and reminds us that we are not isolated individuals, but that we are part of a body. The consumer wants to have their options open. I don't want to commit. I want to see what the next, you know, FOMO, all that. The Christian is called to faithfulness and fidelity. We are called to pursue one God. We are called to pursue one spouse. We are called to faithfulness as a way of life. In our world, we keep our options open. The character of the consumer is about entitlement. The customer is always right. Whereas the Christian is schooled, or should be schooled, in forgiveness and thankfulness. Our consumer culture wants us to be comfortable almost above anything, and yet, Jesus says that true life is found through sacrifice. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. 
Now, if that were not enough contrasts for you, I found some more in an article in Soldier's Magazine, and so I'm going to give them to you. Um, they're a little more like poetic or whatever, but Christians encourage, consumers complain. Christians empower, consumers criticize. Christians sacrifice, consumers hoard. Christians work together, consumers compete. Christians volunteer, consumers take. Christians give generously, consumers buy. Christians serve, consumers obtain. Christians save, consumers waste. Christians protect, consumers destroy. Christians love people, consumers love things. Now, we have to be honest and say that when we say Christians, we mean like in an ideal world, in what we should be pursuing, the things that scripture lays out for what is healthy for us. But if we recognize the truth of this is that like we are both Christians and consumers in our day and age. And that what we really have to wrestle with is how this type of world has is so dangerous for our discipleship. And that it's going to prevent us from growing into deep and mature followers of Jesus. Now, coming back to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words here, there's another set of contrasts I haven't spoken about yet. And at first, it kind of seems a little bit obscure and sort of doesn't really fit. But actually, I think that when you recognize what Jesus is saying, it becomes the key to the whole thing. So here it is. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now this section is sandwiched between Jesus telling his people who are listening where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And sandwiched on the other side by you cannot serve both God and money. And here in the middle is this sort of obscure passage. But I do think it is the key to understanding both the treasure and the God and money piece. And here's why. Things become clearer when you realize that Jesus is actually using a Jewish idiom, a Jewish expression that kind of gets lost in translation a little bit. So in the scriptures, it was, it's frequent, a frequent metaphor that the eyes are used as a metaphor for a moral thing, so in a moral sense. So a good or healthy eye is related to generosity, a generous person, while a bad, unhealthy eye is associated with being stingy or greedy or a miser. And so I'll give you a couple of examples of where we can find this in both the Old and New Testaments. So in Proverbs, we see a generous man, which literally in the Hebrew is the man who has a good eye, will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Later on in Proverbs, we see a stingy man, which is literally the man with an evil eye, is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. Now, further on in Matthew, 
Jesus tells a parable, and it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And in this parable, at the end of the day, the people who have worked all day complain that they should be paid more than the people who came and worked for like an hour at the end of the day. And the owner of the vineyard says to these people, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And the literal translation of the Greek would be, or is your eye evil because I am good? Okay, so now we're beginning to see a little bit more what this obscure, weird reference to eyes and light is about. Jesus is using this metaphor of eyes to speak of the generosity or greed that we might have as measures of the light and darkness of our souls. Now in the scriptures, when we think about light, it often refers to God's presence. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. God's presence is in the light. It is also a symbol often of goodness. So earlier in the Sermon on the Mount even, we were told that we are the light of the world. And what that meant was that our, through our good works, we reflect God's glory into the world. That the light of God is shone into the world through our goodness, through our good works. So then the practice of generosity is the key. Because this is the key to helping us orient our desires towards their proper attachments, towards God and to others. They allow light into our bodies. We don't stumble around in the darkness anymore. Generosity enables us to be imitators of God because God is the one who has been generously gracious to us in Christ. And it'll also help us to take our eyes off of ourselves so that we can be aware and observant and then respond to the needs of others. And I think that that generosity then is the key to understanding these two masters. That generosity breaks the grip of money over us if we learn to be open-handed, we learn to live caring for others. And I want to illustrate this through two contrasting stories that we find in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So the first is that of the rich, rich young ruler. So he comes to Jesus asking, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and it says that Jesus loved him. And they have a conversation. But Jesus knows his heart. And so during that conversation, Jesus says to him, go, sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. And it was too much. Because his heart still treasured his things too deeply. He was not ready to be so generous. And so he went away sad. Now contrast that with Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector whose love for money was notorious, almost as much as the extortion that he used to force others to give him more. And Jesus encounters him isolated and alone in a tree and promptly invites himself over for dinner. And while the scriptures don't tell us what happened that night, we know that something did. There was a transformation in Zacchaeus. He realized that he was treasuring the wrong things. And through his encounter 
with God's grace given to him in Jesus, his response is generosity. He gives half of what he owns to the poor, and then he repays everybody he has stolen from four times. Two encounters with Jesus, two different heart places, two different responses. Who do you relate to more? The rich young ruler or Zacchaeus? It's a question to consider. As I conclude this morning, I want to share a story that Ruth Haley Barton includes in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. It's told by Theophane, who's a Cistercian monk, a Cistercian monk, living in St. Benedict's Monastery in Snow Pass, Colorado. And it will be up on the screen. I'm going to try to read it from the book and on the screen. We'll see if I can pull this off. This might be too much, but we'll see. I saw a monk working alone in the vegetable garden. I squatted down beside him and said, Brother, what is your dream? He just looked straight at me. What a beautiful face he had. I would like to be a monk, he answered. But brother, you are a monk, aren't you? I've been here for 25 years, but I still carry a gun. He drew a revolver from the holster, holster under his robe. It looks so strange, a monk carrying a gun. And they won't, are you saying they won't let you become a monk until you give up your gun? No, it's not that. Most of them don't even know I have it, but I know. Well, then why don't you give it up? I guess I've had it so long. I've been hurt a lot. And I've hurt a lot of others. I don't think I would be comfortable without this gun. But you seem pretty uncomfortable with it. Yes, pretty uncomfortable, but I have my dream. Why don't you give me the gun? I whispered. I was beginning to tremble. He did. He gave it to me. His tears ran down to the ground. And then he embraced me. I think many of us carry a dream within us of a deeper intimacy with God. To live truly into who we are as God's children. To know him in the midst of our daily. But we also know that there are things that we're holding on to that keep that from happening or that make that seem like it's not as true as it could be. For some, as this passage talks about, that may be possessions and things because they have a habit of getting at our hearts. Now, I've intentionally tried not to be overly prescriptive this morning because I wanted to give some teaching and create space for the Spirit to speak. But I guess it might be appropriate for me to give a few suggestions of things that we should do. But I'm more interested in you pondering, and as I'll say in a second, not alone, but with others. Um, generosity is the key. So how can you be generous with your money, with your things, but also with your gifts and with your time? It's not only about possessions. This is a way of life. It affects how we do relationships. It affects how we do church. 
we need to like wrestle with the consumeristic tentacles that are choking us from being true followers of Jesus. And so how would you be generous with your time? How could you be serving? Do you need to consider why you buy things? What need are you trying to fill? What disordered desire do you have where you're putting things, where you're hoping for something where it is not actually going to be found? Or where you buy things are the things you buy, things that are good for not just yourself, but for others, for all we want along the process of making it. Consider how we can deepen our desire for God and his priorities. And maybe you don't feel all that excited about the kingdom of God. Maybe you're a bit like the rich young ruler where you're, you're interested and you want it, but you don't want it that much. Or maybe you do want it that much, but you're just tired of not wanting it that much. Storing up treasures in heaven is about investing. It's about investment. And so maybe your heart would change if you just started investing in the right things. Making the discipline of investing yourself in the things that you know are good. But I also want to invite you to allow the Spirit to speak to you about these contrasts. And maybe God is asking you to pay attention to one or two of these in your own life. Maybe there is something about one or two of these that when you heard it, it resonated, it rang true in a way that made you either uncomfortable or excited or whatever it might be. And maybe God is inviting you to think about that. Now, it would be easy for us all to get in our cars and to drive back to our houses and to think in our heads, I'm going to think about this. I'm really going to process this with me and God and I'm going to work on this and then everything will change. That just plays into the individualistic tone of our culture. These are the kind of things that can be processed with others. The monk needed someone to come and take his gun, to, to offer, to take it for him, to hold it, to take his burden. These are the kind of things that would be great to talk about in something like a Covcom. And lo and behold, we have them. Um, so uh, I would put that suggestion out to you. And not just once. These are things we need to... On We're swimming uphill, upstream, I guess, more. Climbing uphill, swimming upstream. We're going against the flow, regardless, in our culture, are on these things. And these things, as you look at the bigger picture, really do hurt our ability to be true disciples. And it's not that things are bad. They are good. But they are not ends in themselves. They are means to another end, which is an attachment to God and attachment to others. Now, we're about to head into communion. And as we do so, I want us to recognize something because I think this, right here, turns consumption on its head. And here's why. Is in a few moments, we are going to consume the bread and the juice. We who are many, though, are going to come to this one loaf, and we are going to consume it. But as we do so, we are going to be mysteriously taken up into the wider body of Christ. And so our individual self then is consumed by this, by the body of Christ that we're a part of. And then as we have fed and consumed and been consumed, we go out as food for others. That is the mystery of what is happening here. And it challenges our understanding of consumption, and it challenges our understanding of consumerism, and it calls us 
recognize that we are part of something bigger, that we are being taken up into what God is doing, not just here at Forestview, but beyond, and that we are sent out as food for others, that we consume in order then to be consumed. So I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come. We are going to pass out the elements, and I'm going to come back up, and we'll take them together, because that is what this says. God, thank you for your love for us. We've talked about some difficult and to the heart things this morning, both, I'm sure, for those listening, but I know for myself in particular, as those, the ones speaking, the things are convicting. But God, your love for us is great, and you have called us to something bigger. And God, we want our treasure to be in you. We want to be able to pursue you. God, help us to wrestle with the ways in which our world shapes us in ways that aren't drawing us towards the life that you have for us. And as we come to communion, God, thank you that we are brought up into your body, this wider body of people, and then sent out to be food for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.